Thank you for tuning in to the Meridian Friends Church podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss any of the sermons posted each week. You can also find more information about our church at www.meridianfriends.org or on Facebook or Instagram by searching Meridian Friends Church. Now, enjoy the sermon. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. There's just some times you have to go all the way back to the beginning. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's love for us and God's plan for us, His fullest expression of love for us. And did you know that that plan goes all the way back to creation and the beginning? I'm about to launch into a series of messages on the book of Exodus. And I'm going to back us up to Genesis. In fact, you can turn to Genesis chapter 12. I will read from Genesis 15 as well. But you can back all the way up to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to talk about the Exodus experience for the Israelites. The reason I'm drawn to the Exodus right now is I just feel like we can really identify with people who are feeling oppressed and under a circumstance of wandering in the desert. Does that sound about right to us? I got off the Zoom meeting with our Spiritual Life team this past Wednesday afternoon, and I'm so grateful for our leaders that are meeting extra and often and saying, Lord, what do we do in terms of making arrangements during this difficult time when the COVID numbers are so high in our valley? And got off the phone, and as you may know, uh, we canceled for now our fall retreat that was planned for the last of October with Brocky. We will plan to do that later. We feel like we want that to be well attended. It wouldn't happen at this time the same way. And we also set aside for now the Bible quiz meet that Meridian Friends has been planning to host. Thankfully, they're just going to tack it on to the end of the season is our plan and not cancel it altogether. I'm really grateful for that. And I've learned to say with you, the Lord willing. Did you know the early Christians used to sign letters with the two initials DV? And that meant Deo Volente, God willing. So every plan that we have is DV. (laughs) And right now we're just a little more aware of that. Well, I finished that meeting with Spiritual Life on Wednesday and I literally just sat at my desk for a few minutes and cried and prayed. It felt like we had just canceled October. (laughs) And do you know how hard it is to make these plans with Vision Day and all these things that keep getting moved? I genuinely feel we made the right choices. And at the same time, there's some grief involved. Well, 3,500 years ago, God had a plan for us way back then. And I would imagine that the Israelites who were finally freed from oppression after 400 years, in Egypt, making their way out toward the promised land, as they began to take these laps through the desert, did you know it took them 40 years to travel this very short distance between the borders of Egypt and the Jordan River to cross into the promised land? 40 years, an entire generation. I wonder how many times they wondered, does God really have a plan for us? (laughs) You know, the scripture reflects on this experience often, throughout the rest of scripture, the Exodus experience. And I read for you that verse from Psalm 78 that tells us that God carried them out like a flock. And 
And it's just a tender picture of God's care in the middle of that chaos and in the middle of that waiting and in the middle of that wondering. So that's the reason that I'm having us turn to the book of Exodus and I'm not even going to open Exodus yet. We'll start with that next week. By the way, I'm not gonna go through it verse by verse by verse, don't worry. We're not gonna be there for five years or 40. (laughs) We're just going to uh, take some of the major themes that are there in Exodus. So many of them are speaking to me right now and I wanna offer them as a hope, as an encouragement to help all of us in our time of waiting, in our time of dead ends and wandering, to help all of us to know that God's still in control. So I'm having you turn to the bigger picture of Genesis. Did you know that the Exodus experience was actually told to Abraham generations before. As a matter of fact, if you're looking at Genesis chapter 12, you're looking at a conversation that God has with Abraham to whom he promises to be a blessing to the whole world. That's a picture of Jesus. Through Abraham is going to come one who will be the savior of the whole world. So as you read the whole Old Testament, you should know this is what the whole Old Testament is about. It's about God's promise, God's covenant with Abraham. It's about God's promise to send Jesus into this world for our rescue, to give us what he intended for us all along, to love him completely, to know him without fetter, without the consequence of sin that we're living under so heavily in our world. Jesus Christ will do all that, and it comes through Abraham. So Abraham, as you know, is going to have many sons, and one of those sons um, down the line is Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Judah, as you know, and from the tribe of Judah, Jesus is born. There's hope all the way back to the book of Genesis. So I'm going to read this from Genesis chapter 12. This is the context, if you will, of the book of Exodus. Genesis 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. The Exodus is not the first time God had his people hit the road. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's coming in Jesus. Oh, but Abraham, did you know that I'm going to enslave your people for a while? Incidentally, if you don't know, the whole account of Joseph in Genesis, which is at the end of Genesis leading up to Exodus, It's all about the preservation of God's line of people leading to Jesus. I'm sure Joseph didn't like the plan at the time of being thrown into a pit and betrayed by his brothers and being falsely accused and all of those things that happened to Joseph in his life. But it also was part of a plan. God's plan. So, Chapter 15, just skipping forward to that, I want to read this verse. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. Hold on to those words as you skip down to verse 12 of Genesis 15. I'm your shield. I'm your sword. I've got a great plan. I'm going to bless all nations through you. I'm in control. 
but there's also going to be Exodus experiences in this life. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Did you know that's way back in Genesis chapter 12? They're going to Egypt. They'll be mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here as he's traveling to the promised land. There's an image that I've been thinking about with reference to the Exodus and with reference to this sense of captivity and bondage perhaps that we feel living under the oppression of COVID-19. And it's the image of a maze. You ever feel like your life is a maze? <laughs> so many dead ends, so many reroutes, so many times, at least for me, and I feel like as a church, we're just taking another lap in the desert and we're circling around to the same dead end that we found before. <laughs> and in so many ways, Deo Valente, <laughs> in so many ways we're learning that God only is our hope for rescue from this thing, this trap <laughs> that we feel like we're in in so many ways. been thinking about a maze. You know, the entire secret to a maze could be summarized with one word. It's perspective. You know those corn mazes that they have that they mow through all these paths in a, I'm just amazed that they can do that. And then you get these pictures from aerial shots of this pattern that this maze makes. But when you're in the maze and the corn is taller than you are, this dead corn, you can't see, <laughs> and you're just circling around and, and getting lost and, and so forth. But from the aerial view of a maze, you know what to do. God has a perspective on the confusing circumstances of our life that you and I simply don't have. God sees the beginning from the ending. And he knows what's best every step of the way. Even in those experiences of desert, even in those times when there's oppression and mistreatment, God gave us all free will. Adam and Eve in the garden sinned. Genesis 3.15, part of the curse, says that people are going to be against each other. Therefore, you have people enslaving each other like this. We'll read about all of that, of course, in the book of Exodus to come. But I want you to see the bigger picture. I think it's so important for us to hold on to the fact that God has a design. It doesn't make sense to us necessarily in our moment, in our week, in our year, maybe even in our generation. But God has such a bigger, broader, wider perspective of all of the experiences that we have. So I want to reference this, and I want to call this a pattern. There's an Exodus pattern that I want you to see. A pattern is something intentional. A pattern is something that has 
a solution, if you will. And I believe by faith that God has a way out. You know, the word exodus from the Latin is a word that means exit. It's a word that means deliverance. And the book of Exodus is this great celebration of the exit from the bondage of sin. And what I want you to know is that the, the Bible itself, moving forward from the experience of the Exodus, giving you the bigger picture here today, the Bible itself references this experience as a key experience of God's salvation history. So, in the Psalms alone, there are 20 different Psalms that make reference to the bondage in Egypt and the exodus of wandering in the wilderness and all the lessons that he taught his people through that and all of the ways that God faithfully provided for these people while they were in captivity. It's a major event in the scripture. What you may not know is that these terms that are mentioned in the Exodus are ways of understanding God's pattern for salvation that the New Testament writers would adopt. This becomes a key way of understanding, if, if I could put it this way, God's M.O., God's strategy for our exit from the bondages of this world with a bigger plan in mind. So there's a pattern. For example, we read in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament that we're going to be going through uh, in the coming weeks, we read about literal slavery in Egypt, and we know that that happened. Well, the New Testament also talks about our salvation experience as one of slavery and freedom. In the New Testament, we were enslaved to things like the law. We were enslaved to sin, and Romans 6.14 is one example that shows us that. The Apostle Paul, with his background in the Old Testament, certainly understands the Exodus experience. He knows all about God's deliverance from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh and the slavery that they were under. And he makes references in describing the way God works in his pattern of Exodus, of leading us out of former things in the former life with this kind of uh, slavery language. The Passover lamb, that's a big one, right? I've just picked a few. But to give you an overall perspective of why the Exodus is so important for us to be thinking about. The Passover lamb is first referenced, of course, in the book of Exodus. Do you remember it? I'm sure you do. The ten plagues were going on. And the last plague was the angel of death. And the angel of death killed all the firstborn, except for those who had taken blood from a lamb and put it over their doorposts as a way of signifying that they were God's people. Wow. Talk about an image that the New Testament picks up. John the Baptist, when he first greets Jesus in Mark 1.29, says, Behold the Lamb of God. He knows all about it. He understands that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. I just want you to know that the Exodus is so rich in theology, it helps us understand complex things like soteriology. Believe it or not, we can look at the book of Exodus and we can learn about the realized 
the, the, the messianic implications of realized eschatology when the kingdom of God is present now. I mean, I've got to get something out of my uh, degree in theology, right? I just want you to know it's put in terms for us that we can relate to through this experience. It's substitutionary atonement. Why did Jesus go to the cross? God's ultimate plan for our rescue, our exodus from sin and the bondage of legalism. How do we understand that? Well, we know that Jesus went to the cross. And get this, people don't often think about this with regard to the exodus, but this is before the law is given to Moses. That's not gonna happen until after they get out of Egypt. You know that, right? That's gonna happen afterwards. Why is that important? Because when God reveals to Moses the, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, when he starts telling him, this is, this is the sacrifice that God will want with the temple, which they know nothing about at this point, much less the tabernacle that's going to be established in Exodus, God is providing for them his MO. He's providing a pattern for them of salvation. Blood is required for forgiveness. And we get that all the way back to Exodus. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And, and this helps us to understand the need for sacrifice. This is the way God chose to do it. And you're going to see these patterns that, that go all the way back to Exodus. Promised land. Well, in the New Testament, this is a reference to something much better than this world. I just finished a whole series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where the kingdom of God is described. Blessed are those that are this way because they live in the kingdom of God. There's descriptions in the New Testament of our freedom, of what it looks like to live in the presence and reality and in, under the lordship of Jesus Christ here and now. So yes, there's a permanent exodus in a promised land, but already we have been delivered from the slavery of these things. We, we, we've already exited Egypt and we, we just haven't quite got there in terms of crossing the Jordan over to the promised land. And, and so this becomes a way for us to understand that there is something better on the west side of the Jordan River and we live on the east side. We, we sort of live with one foot in both realities because the kingdom's already here and now Jesus is present with us. And at the same time, this is not all, folks. This is not the glory of Jesus Christ present in his full lordship and rulership that he will come back to establish. I'm so thankful. We get a glimpse of heaven. We get a glimpse of what it will look like for Jesus to reign on this earth and, it, and, it, and it's expressed in the love of Christ and nowhere greater expressed than on the cross. There is a promised land for us. The New Testament borrows these things. Now here's one that you may have never thought about. Many have compared the Red Sea parting to our baptism. Talk about a pattern. If you think about it, God called his people. They went into this bondage. They were rescued from the bondage. And the first thing they do before they go out in the wilderness is they walk through water, the parting of the Red Sea. This pattern's actually repeated as you walk into Judges and you see that God's people have to cross the Jordan River in order to face their enemies. 
Jesus, and the gospel writers understand this pattern, Jesus, of course, is baptized, and then he goes out and faces his enemy, where? In the wilderness. For how long? For 40 days. And I want us to see that there is a beautiful order to God's plan. There's a different way to look at it. There's a perspective that we often don't have when we're standing with stocks that are taller than our heads because the problems that we face in this world are taller than us. They're bigger than us. They're confounding to us. They're confusing to us. But God is in control. And I find great hope and great comfort in knowing that God has an exit strategy. That, that God knows exactly how to lead us to freedom and safety one day. But even in the desert, even in the meantime, God is caring for us in the wilderness like a flock. He's shepherding us here and now. You'll, you'll see this in Exodus. There's a pillar of fire by night and there's a, there's a pillar of cloud by day and, and they run out of food and what are they going to do? And they, 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 can't, they don't have anything to drink and what are they going to do? And the Egyptians are on their heels and they're backed up against a problem. What are they going to do? Even in the wilderness experience, God is able to care for us. We need to hold on to that. He's got a plan. He often doesn't show it to us in the moment. Amen? But he's got a plan. I want to just pull a few things out that I think could be applicational for us. And I'm calling this what God's exit strategy teaches us. And so as you think about the Exodus and as we open up to Exodus next week and, and as we start to think about the themes that are there in this marvelous book, this incredible book, I want us to think about some major lessons that I think are just going to pop out to you over and over. They certainly do to me. God's exit strategy teaches us. Have you noticed this? God does things in his own way. <laughs> he does things in his own way. If you know that's true, write in the comments, amen. <laughs> I mean, it's just often not my preferred way of doing things. God does things in his own way. You know, as you think about the Exodus experience and you think about all of the dead ends that these people experience. You think, why? I mean, why does God have to do it this way? The way that it reads, and you and I have the advantage of being post-Exodus, right? We, we get to see this from so many generations, uh, so distant from it. We can say, well, well, of course, this was God's plan all along. The way it reads, though, from our perspective, is that, well, of course God did it this way because that way, everybody knows that the only way these people are going to get rescued is it was God. I mean, God does things in such a way that the only explanation for how this happened is God's rescue, 
that he's the one who delivers them all the way through. I mean, how are you going to provide for this many people wandering in the desert? The 10 plagues. I mean, wow. <laughs> Talk about God's fireworks. Why does God choose to do it that way? Well, it certainly results in us saying we know that he did it. 10 times? <laughs> There's some interesting things we'll look at with the, with the 10 plagues as well. What can I do while wandering in the desert? To be honest with you, th this, this question is what is driving this whole series for me. I almost called this series, What to Do While Wandering in the Desert. <laughs> I want to give a practical answer to what we can do in light of the fact that God will do this in his own way, regardless of what we think or understand, or as Garrett says, our perception of reality. Today, here's one thing that I can do. I can yield my plans. Amen? It's hard for some of us. Let's just admit it. We get too attached to our sense and our need to control things that we just really can't control. Control in itself is not a bad thing. We're called to control. We're called to have dominion. We're, we're called to do what we can when we can and to recognize our limits. That God alone is the God of our exodus. In exodus terms, yielding my plan looks like taking a staff and raising it in front of the water that separates these people from being decimated by the army of Egypt. I just think, I say that because that was a total act of faith. What does raising a staff over my head have anything to do with being delivered? They'd never seen water part of before. Wow. In Exodus terms, I think of this staff again. It, it's key in Exodus, Moses' staff, as you probably know. It's very symbolic and it's very important. But, but at one key point, when God is encouraging Moses that I'm in control, I can do this, I'm going to do this my way, you need to yield your expectations and your plans. He asks Moses this question. He says, Moses, with all of Moses' objections, what's in your hand? And Moses says, this staff. I think that's a great question for us. What is it that we have control of? What, what, what resource do we have? And of course, what he says is throw it down. Let it go. Put it into my care and see what I do with it. So Moses takes this stick and he puts it on the ground and it becomes alive. Do you remember all that? In Exodus terms, yielding my plan means to release something. It, it means to let it go. It, it means to acknowledge in, in very practical ways, God is in control and I'm not. So if this is helpful to you, shrug your shoulders. I mean, physically. Just shrug your shoulders. Can you feel tension? <laughs> I've been doing that often <laughs> in the last year and a half. I had a good friend tell me that that was a good idea uh, just to do physically because they know my need to be in control. Shrug your shoulders, Ken, <laughs> because God's going to do this his own way. 
I came across this story reported by the Boston Globe in 2012. For 31 years, Zeke the turtle lived securely in the home of Bob and Debbie Young of Beverly, Massachusetts. But on July 30th, 2012, the box turtle made a not-so-quick escape after the family cat pawed open a screen door on the back deck. For over a month, Zeke, the prodigal turtle, was on the run. When the... That's <laughs> such a great picture. <laughs> when the... When the youngs realized he was gone, they placed ads in the local paper, they put up flyers around town, and used the services of a search and rescue dog trained to track down reptiles. They even offered cash, a cash reward for Zeke's safe return. Finally, their neighbor's golden retriever sniffed out Zeke. He was trying to hide in some ivy. Zeke's slow but steady month-long journey had taken him about a thousand feet from where he had busted out of his home. <laughs> the neighbor told reporters, he was just sitting there in the lawn, just waiting to be found. It was easy pickings. <laughs> they couldn't believe it, and they were thrilled. I think of that poor turtle as like you and me. <clears throat> How much control do we really have? How much power do we really have? <laughs> I think it's equivalent to a thousand feet through the maze in a month. How about that? We're limited. Speaking of slowly, God does things in his own way. God does things in his own time. And it's often not my timetable. Why is it so hard for us to wait? This is a major theme, I think, in the book of Exodus. It's waiting. It's being faithful to God before we have the promised land. We've been rescued from so much, but there's so much more that we long for that we're waiting for, that we can't make happen in our own strength. God does things in his own time. I mean, let us not overlook a detail we just read in Genesis. They were in Egypt for 400 years. That doesn't sound like a hurry to me. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. God does things so differently. You know, I was thinking about this in, in Exodus terms. One example of waiting to me is Moses removing his sandals. This is a pivotal moment in Exodus. When Moses was young, he was, of course, raised in the household of a king, the king of Egypt, a pharaoh. He was raised in royalty. He was sort of adopted. You remember that whole story? And then he saw the mistreatment of the Hebrews and, and it infuriated him. So what did he do? He lashed out and did things in his own timing and in his own way. He had the right idea to free them, but he couldn't do it his way. And he couldn't do it as fast as he wanted. And so then Moses goes on the run and there he is on the backside of the desert. For how long? Oh, 40 years. 
so here he is, like age 80, and he's tending, he, he's found a wife, Zipporah, and he, he's um, tending sheep, my, tending his flocks, his father-in-law's flocks, minding his own business. And all of a sudden, he comes across a burning bush, a, a curiosity for sure. And God, in his own time, finds Moses. And Moses removes his sandals as an act of reverence and obedience. It, it demonstrates that he knows God is speaking. It demonstrates that whatever God has to say, I'm going to listen. And I wonder if, you know, sandals also are important in Exodus, the way God cared for them. But I, but I know that there's a time for walking and using our sandals, and there's a time to take them off. And there's a time for movement and there's a time for stillness. There's a time to simply wait on God. In Exodus, of all places, we learn about Sabbath. Could I remind you, this is before the law. If we ever want to say that, well, Sabbath is just Old Testament legalism, I want to remind you that it predates the law. And it's still in the heart of God to give us people rest. We can rest in our God. He gives us the opportunity to wait, to stop at least one day in seven. Friends, how are you doing at waiting on God? Here's something I can do while I'm wandering in the desert. I can wait in joy and I can wait in faith. So God provides this food for them called manna, which literally means what is it? They don't know what it is. God provides this food for them as only God can do. And he says, on Friday, essentially on Friday, gather double so that on the Sabbath, on Saturday, which they haven't been introduced to yet, <laughs> the law is not there yet, so that on Saturday you have enough to eat and you don't have to work and gather, kick your sandals up. Rest, stop, wait. Remember what's really important in life. We're, we're always too busy for that, aren't we? <laughs> so, so what happens is, of course, some people don't trust God and so they gather too much during the weekdays and what happens to it? It rots. But when they're obedient and they gather double on Friday, it doesn't rot for the Sabbath. Waiting. In joy, waiting in faith. How well are we waiting on God with that kind of trust, with that kind of obedience? We are not too busy to be people who pray. We are not too busy to be people who invest deeply in the care of our souls, in the care of one another. We live in an age where people do not have time to keep up with each other. They do not have time for deep conversations like small group or whatever. They, they don't have time to care, they think. God does things in his own time and in his own pattern. And he invites us to walk in that way, even while in the desert. God does things his own way. God does things in his own time. And God does things for his own glory. He saves them in ways that only God could do it. 
What can I do while wandering in the desert? Here's something from one of our songs a few weeks ago that just continues to speak to me. Today I can put on the garment of praise, Isaiah 61. Today. Because I want God's deliverance to be something for which I praise Him, even before it happens. I think the difference between faith and thanksgiving is nothing more than a matter of timing. Thanksgiving is thanking God for something He's already done. Faith is thanking God for something He's going to do in the future. And I don't know circumstantially what God's going to do with this puzzle and with this maze. It's not my maze to figure out or to tell Him what that will be. But I know how all of this gets wound up. I know what's going to happen. In Exodus terms, while we're waiting, and, and while we think about this is, this is not in our strength, it's for God's glory, I think we're called to remember the blood of the Lamb. To remember that Jesus Christ, as our substitutionary atonement, He, he has carried the full weight of our sin and he has provided an exit from all that we so long to be free from while we're here and one day ahead of us. If you think about the Exodus, I, I think it would be fair to say that we all live in Egypt. We all live in some kind of oppression and bondage. We all live sort of in a desert. We hope for a promised land. And you know, often the only way to go from Egypt to the promised land is through a desert. We may not like it. It may not happen as fast as we want it to. But God is in full control. I want to invite you as we are thinking about Exodus together in the coming weeks to remember God's bigger plan. To remember ultimate freedom that we can look forward to with certainty. Phil Calloway wrote in a publication called Men of Integrity, one sleepy afternoon when my son was five years old, we drove past a cemetery together, noticing a large pile of dirt beside a newly excavated grave. He pointed and said, look, Dad, one got out. <laughs> I laughed, but now every time I pass a graveyard, I'm reminded of the one who got out. Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. It's already done. We're waiting. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we do know who. There's so much division in the world. There's so much sadness around us. But what unites us as a church is Jesus Christ. We know who we belong to. And we know who holds our future. And I'm so thankful 
that belong to him. I'd like to lead us in a prayer, and we do have a closing song. Jesus, today we've taken this time together to hear from you and to honor you and to give you praise even before we get what we want. You are worthy. You alone are our Passover lamb. Jesus, while you allow us to experience things like the bondages of this world and the waiting, the wandering, we so want to be people who are faithful to you today. So Lord, renew our hope. Renew our faith. Help us to put on a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that we may be like the mighty cypress and oaks for your glory and for your praise. We know that we live in a world so desperate and so needing hope. Jesus, you are our hope. You loved us like no other. You experienced on our behalf the wrath and the bondage of sin in dying on a cross for us. You are resurrected, you're risen, you're alive. And you, Lord, are our sure hope. So today, teach us to rejoice. Teach us to wait well. Teach us, Lord, that you are our hope and our joy. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.